0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, Dr. Newfeld continues in his current series, The King Goes Public, with a message about how Jesus proclaimed his first message regarding the kingdom of God. So join me as we look at the headquarters of the king in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, with Dr. John Newfeld. I'm reading from Matthew 4,
1: 12 to 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The New Testament opens with two men giving the same message. Both John the Baptist and Jesus preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by the way, if you're reading the parallel passage in Mark, you'll notice it says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, without going into all the details, let's just assume that both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, two phrases, mean exactly the same thing. Well, more than anything else, Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven. In the Gospels, he mentions it over 100 times in about 70 different passages commenting on its meaning. And if you're going to be his follower, he invites you to discover the kingdom. Before I go there, let me step back just a bit and follow our passage up until we get to verse 17. According to Luke 3.23, Jesus was somewhere around 30 when he began his public ministry. Everything else in his life was preparation for this. According to the book of John, John mentions three Passovers Jesus attended in Jerusalem. So we normally think of Jesus' ministry as having lasted about three years. Usually we break Jesus' ministry, the three years, into three categories. The first year is the year of obscurity. That is, there really is very little mentioned about that year. The second year is the year of popularity, and the third year is his year of opposition in which the crowd who once loved him turned against him and his message and nailed him to the cross. So let's begin at the beginning. Matthew tells us almost nothing about Christ's first year. All he actually says is contained in one verse, and that verse is verse 12. Now when he heard that John was arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. That's all that Matthew mentions about the first year of Christ's ministry. Most Bible teachers believe that verse 12 marks either the end of the first year or the beginning of the second year. And so, since we're curious, what actually happened up to this point? According to the book of John, Jesus began his ministry after his baptism by ministering and preaching in a place called Bethany across the Jordan, which was a little village on the east side of the Jordan River where the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea. It's here that he gained his first disciples, but it's also here that John the Baptist, who by this time was quite popular, kept pointing people to Jesus, urging them to follow him. We remember many left John and followed Jesus. We know that during this time, Jesus traveled north to Galilee, and there in a place called Cana of Galilee, performed his first miracle, which, as you'll remember, was changing water into wine, and there his disciples believed in him. From there, he spent a brief period of time with his family in Capernaum, and then he traveled south going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. There he turns over the tables of the money changers and claims that he's more important than the temple. It was during this time that he met Nicodemus, and he told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. From there he went back north to Galilee, traveled through Samaria, and met and ministered to the woman at the well. But all the way he was preaching and baptizing. At some time, according to Luke 4.28, he returned to his hometown in Nazareth, where the citizens of Nazareth roundly rejected him, making it clear they saw no room for him there. But in Matthew 4.12, we learn from Matthew that what precipitated Jesus leaving Jerusalem and traveling north to the more lightly populated region of Galilee was the arrest of John the Baptist. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus said that John was arrested by Herod Antipas, who, by the way, was the grandson of Herod the Great. That's that's the Herod known for butchering the children of Bethlehem. So this Herod Antipas, said Josephus, arrested John because John was drawing huge crowds and his preaching was immensely popular. Everyone was listening. But Matthew tells us that Herod had another reason for arresting John. In Matthew 14, verses 3 to 4, we learn that John condemned Herod, for Herod divorced his wife, then married his half-brother, Philip's wife, a woman named Herodias, and John the Baptist said, this violates the law of God. John said Herod needed to repent. Herod responded by simply arresting John, and Jesus, because he was tied to John, withdrew to Galilee. And in so doing, Nazareth rejected him, and Jesus then makes his home in a place called Capernaum. If you go to Capernaum today, which is in a beautiful location right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, you'll find simply the ruins of a little town, but on the outside, you'll see a sign, and it will say, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. And indeed, that's exactly what it was. If you join the Back to the Bible tour, uh, we'll visit Capernaum, and we'll explain the importance to the ministry of Jesus of that village. For all the second year of ministry, Capernaum was the center of Jesus' preaching ministry. At Jesus' time, it had a population of probably around 1,000 people. There was a major transportation route that ran through this region called the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea. It was a major trade route that ran right outside the town and went on to the Mediterranean Sea, which allowed for goods to be shipped in and out of that area. Because of its importance as a trade route, the Romans established a garrison of soldiers there. Matthew, the tax collector, established his tax booth, yes, along that route. That's why he met Jesus. And along this area, many Jews and Gentiles would come in contact with each other. So even though Capernaum was not Jerusalem, Jesus established himself there so that his preaching ministry would have the largest impact possible. The location was perfect. But Matthew sees more. Matthew is mindful of the ancient history of that place. The location was a part of a tribal allotment of the tribe of Naphtali. When Israel divided into two nations in 931 B.C., the territory of Naphtali became a part of the northern kingdom of Israel and also became a part of one of the most idolatrous places on earth. The place was finally destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and the entire Israelite population was deported and assimilated into other people groups. The Assyrians brought Gentiles into this territory, and the Bible tells us in 2 Kings 1733 that the new settlers feared Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they also served other gods, so the place was morally corrosive. It became a place of syncretism, that is, the combining of various religious ideas into a kind of pagan melting pot, which would have included some biblical ideas as well. So by the time of Jesus, the region had again come under the jurisdiction of Israel, but the general population of the area, because of its significance in trade, was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And the people living in Jerusalem, the people of Galilee, were just spiritually dark and ignorant and had a pagan past. But, says Matthew, that's exactly what the ancient prophet Isaiah foresaw. Matthew remembers Isaiah 8, how God had promised that this dark place was going to be wiped out by the king of Assyria, which, of course, was an accurate prophecy, 100% accurate. But Isaiah had gone beyond that and had said, if you will, this is not the end of the story of this place. Quoting Isaiah concerning Zebulun and Naphtali, Matthew writes, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Isaiah was saying, when the end times come, the great liberation of God from the bondage of Satan, from the oppression of darkness, that great liberation will begin in this very place. And, says Matthew, isn't it amazing then when Jesus sought a base of operations that was to form the center point of his ministry, it was in the territory that Isaiah had prophesied, the light of God would begin to shine in this dark place. Of course, all this was a setup with the arrest of John the Baptist. So why is all this so important? Well, Matthew knows that the timing of the entire course of events comes from God. God orchestrated this. Let's put it into context. John 3, 28 to 30 quotes John the Baptist. You yourself bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so, John, this amazing man knew his role. He would become very popular. Then, at the height of his popularity, he would try to give all of his followers away to Jesus, and then he would fade out of the way. And once that had happened, Jesus was ready to move from his year of obscurity to his year of popularity. And with that, Matthew tells us this is his message. Repent! for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now when we come back, we're gonna try to figure out why this message of Jesus, repent, the kingdom of heaven was at hand, is the most amazing message ever preached.
0: This introduction really shed some light on the historic and geographical context of the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. As we can see, God orchestrated everything leading up to this point, from the arrest of John the Baptist to the spiritual darkness that characterized the town where Jesus was stationed during his first year of ministry. When we return from the break, Dr. Neufeld will take a closer look at the meaning of Jesus' very first message that he gave when he went public. Great news, our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran to name a few. And recently we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.
1: Matthew tells us that when Jesus began to preach, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, on the one hand, this is identical to the message that John preached. John's message was that the great end times were about to begin. The great age of the Messiah was upon us. God was about to rule. And now Jesus is preaching the very same thing. Of course, we're reading this in Matthew after the events took place, and we know there's a difference in the way that Jesus preached this and the way that John did. We know that John is paving the way for the king and that Jesus is the king. Maybe the people listening don't fully know the difference, but they know something is different about the way Jesus preaches this compared to the way John did. For one, John didn't do any miracles, and Jesus had already changed the water into wine. And the book of John tells us that at the very same time in Capernaum, the leading Roman official from the garrison of troops stationed there had a son who was at the point of death. Jesus simply gave the word and the son was instantly healed. So immediately, everyone in Capernaum already knew that Jesus' ministry was superior to John. Okay, let's get back to the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean? Well, first of all, hang on. Here's what it means. Evil is about to be destroyed. If you read the Old Testament and the promises of David's greater son, ruling from his throne, this is precisely the thought behind it. For instance, consider what God says in the time of the kingdom, what will happen to the nations that pursue evil. Psalm 2, 8 and 9, speaking of the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." See, the day in which the kingdom appears is the day that God rules through his Messiah. Now, before we go on, let's be clear. God and heaven have always been ruling. God is sovereign, which means he controls all things. He even controls evil in this sense. He will not allow evil past borders he has determined, and he will use evil so that in the end, even evil will serve his purposes. We've already seen that in the temptation of Jesus. So we saw that even when Satan came and tempted Jesus, the Father himself used that experience to serve his own purposes. That's what sovereignty means. See, if I were diagnosed with terminal cancer tomorrow, I would see my cancer as evil, as the result of living in a cursed creation, and I would realize that cancer, and all diseases for that matter, and death itself are a part of ruin and sin, and I would not blame God for it. But I would be absolutely convinced that God is using the cancer itself for my long-term good and for his eternal glory. That's the wonderful news about the sovereignty of God. No evil will upset God's purposes. That's why we're at peace. This is my Father's world. But the announcement of the kingdom is another matter. When the kingdom comes, God no longer uses evil for his purposes. God utterly smashes and destroys evil. Evil itself falls under his hand and is ruined. And so when Jesus announced the kingdom of heaven, he was announcing that evil was about to be destroyed. And with that, we add another thing. God's will of command is about to be done. In just two chapters from what we're reading, Jesus will teach his followers to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that when the kingdom comes, earth and heaven are governed in precisely the same way. Is evil allowed to enter into heaven? Well, no. So will it be on earth? No. But in the present hour, God may command one thing, and yet according to his eternal decree, allow something else. For instance, God commands Pharaoh to repent in the Old Testament. That's his will of command. And yet God also decrees or allows that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. In the present hour, that's what we see. God is sovereign, even while evil rages. He rules all things, even the hearts of wicked men. But when the kingdom comes, All commands and decrees of God are the same. Whatever God commands is more than just a moral imperative. That is, you shall do something. Rather, all that God commands will be done. And so as Jesus enters into his year of popularity, this is what he's talking about. All evil now begin to fall under God's command. That hour, when that will occur, now stands at the door how many of you remember John the Baptist's confusion over this? How can the baptism of the Spirit begin while the destruction of evil has not yet occurred? What gives? Now the answer to John's question forms the basis of the entire teaching ministry of Jesus. Not only is Jesus announcing the kingdom of heaven, he tells us how his kingdom is arriving. That will mean at least two things. First, it begins unnoticed by most. That may sound almost impossible to believe, but that's what Jesus taught. Remember the parable of the mustard seed? Matthew records this in Matthew 13:31 and 32. Let me read it. He put another parable before them saying, "The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." And that's exactly what happened oh, the kingdom came all right. In the Old Testament, the battle against idols and demons are behind all of the battles that are there. That drama is central. But at best, the battle is always a standoff. But when Jesus came, the demons fled, shrieked in terror. Evil was being routed. And when all the effects of the fall, which would have included sickness and death, were presented to Jesus, well, you know the story. The blind received their sight. The lame walked The lepers were cleansed, the deaf heard, the dead were raised. Evil is not being used here to fulfill the Lord's purposes. Evil is being smashed. It is being laid to waste. It's left in ruins. But that was happening in only one small place on earth, like a tiny mustard seed planted in a large expanse of garden. But this was just the beginning of the reign of the kingdom. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he handed the kingdom of Satan and of evil its ultimate defeat. It's much like the Allied invasion of Normandy in the Second World War. When the Allied forces captured the beaches of Normandy, Hitler was not defeated, but yet he was. Even though the Nazis continued to fight with ferocity, they could no longer win, for the decisive battle had been fought and won. That's what Jesus accomplished in his cross. And that's what's happening today. As the gospel spreads, so does the message of the kingdom. As men and women are being set free from Satan's tyranny, the decisive battle on the cross has been fought and won. And so the end of the story can no longer be in doubt. Yes, said Jesus, this will start small, but eventually it will encompass the earth. It begins unnoticed by most, but it ends by ruling the world. And in the end, the king will return, and all the nations will mourn before him. Satan will be thrown into a lake of fire. All evil will be smashed. That's what Jesus announced. So what? Do we just hang around and, and wait for this to happen? No. And this is the key to understanding Jesus. Jesus is saying, since this is happening, and no one can stop what I unleash on the world, you better pick sides. And how do you do that? Jesus said, let me help you. Repent. And that's why believers today live with a repentant heart. We know that the present hour may be dark, but we also know that evil is doomed. We know that no matter how dark the hour is, this present darkness cannot win. As Martin Luther wrote, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And that's why all Christians deeply in our souls are hopeful. The king has set up his headquarters among us. And as one hymn writer said so well, his kingdom will reign from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for Jesus and the announcement of his kingdom. I thank you that even though that we live in this present darkness, I thank you, O Lord God, that this darkness cannot stand. Thank you for Jesus who healed the sick and and cured those who had diseases that were a part of this world of sin and death. Thank you that he broke down Satan's strong dominion. and Thank you, O Lord God, that he proclaims the coming of a kingdom. Lord, for all of us who seem lost in evil or discouraged because of evil. Let us remember the works and the words of Jesus. May we be encouraged by him. In his matchless name we pray, amen.
0: John, what a powerful message today. And one we should uh, just really put our hope in that we know that the kingdom of God is here. Uh, it reminded me, though, of a passage in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and I know you know this verse, and uh, just how our, our perspective of that verse and what it really means.
1: Yeah, Jesus told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And sometimes we think about gates as uh, something that's making an attack against us, so we build this image in ourselves that hell is forming this great mass that's coming against us, and we're just going to hang on till Jesus comes again, but the image is actually turned around. Gates are a defensive mechanism. So we are storming the gates of hell because the kingdom of God has arrived and Satan is unable to keep his captives anymore. We're dragging them out from under his nose and delivering them to the kingdom of God. That's the image, it's a beautiful image.
0: It's a great image, and it's an image of the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful, John, for breaking open the Word to us, and uh, we look forward to all that we have in store in the next few days as we look into Matthew even further. Thanks again, and join us tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada. so grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp, how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now, they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. Please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible dot ca today.